I'm delighted to be joined by Tessa Stewart today. Um, Tessa has a wealth of experience in the industry and knows food and drink consumers intimately, it's fair to say, um, through her work as the self-styled shopper stalker, more of which later. Um, she helps food and drink products get maximum attention and therefore sales by interviewing shoppers right where they make decisions about products in the uh, highly competitive aisles of supermarkets. She works with global brands, food startups, scale-ups, and also she's written two very, uh, well, I would say two dynamite books that help startups avoid costly mistakes, find stockists, and sell their products faster. I thought it'd be really interesting, actually, to find out how she got into the industry, how she became the shopper stalker, and you know how she came to start her business in food. So welcome, Tessa. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. This is a great honour to be included in Food Founders, and I'm very aware of the privilege of it. So, well, let's start at the beginning. How did you start your career, and uh, and what led you into the food industry? Did you start in the food industry? No, I never started in the food industry. I wanted to be an advertising planner, um, and I applied to lots of ad agencies and always made it to like the last two, but didn't get a job as a planner. And then I realized that actually account planning, which was the study of the consumer, was a very different beast in all the different ad agencies. And I came across someone who said, why don't you think about training to run focus groups? Because it's a proper skill and you could use it either in an agency, an ad agency, or you could use it in a market research agency. And I had never heard of running focus groups, didn't know anything about it at all. Um, so I joined a really good market research agency and I worked on Cadbury and Nestle there as well as other big blue chip clients. But I really loved working for Cadbury on new product development. So we did everything from developing the Whisper Bar to uh, looking at the advertising for the milk tray man, how much of him should be seen, what kind of polo neck should he wear when he was delivering the chocolates to the lady and and it was absolutely fascinating and I remember one focus group where my interviewees went on strike until I gave them chocolate uh, which was awkward because I didn't want their mouths full of chocolate because I needed them to be able to talk so I didn't want them stuffed full of Cadbury products um, but it was an interesting insight into how people will strike for food um, so then I ran focus groups in the food and drink space in a variety of agencies for a while. And then I thought I was having my babies and I didn't want to go away from them and go to Wolverhampton overnight and just leave them. Specifically Wolverhampton? Um, well, it could have been anywhere, it could have been oh, Sheffield, okay. Liverpool. But if you're, if you're running focus groups face-to-face -face, as opposed to online, you have to go to where the people are. And so you might be away two or three nights a week realistically, or you might be, you might get home to your bed, but it'll be 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. Um, and I thought this is not a way to live. I wonder if there's a different way of doing research so I could stay in research, but not lead this bonkers lifestyle with small children. And I started stalking innocent drinks because I was determined to work for them. They were only half a mile away from my house and I was obsessed with them. So I offered them my children because they were developing the kids drink at the time. And they said, no, they didn't want my children. Um, they had plenty of children, they were fine. They, had, they were using a school nearby actually to do the research. 
And I said, well, do you want any help with the children? Because I have run focus groups with kids. And they said, no, 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 we're absolutely fine. We can run these focus groups ourselves. We don't need any help with that. So I emailed them about a week later when they'd done the focus groups. And they said, that was an absolute nightmare. Would you like to help us with some focus groups with kids? Um, and I said, yes, please. And they sent the brief through. And I remember punching the air because I had spent about two years stalking Innocent because I was so determined to work with them because at that time they were the preeminent food brand and they were fascinating to me and everything that they did was fascinating to me. So I got a job doing focus groups for them and then I persuaded them to try out the shopper stalker approach on developing a new fresh noodle product and they absolutely loved it. They completely loved it. And then I thought this thing has legs. Going into a store with a mock-up or looking at an existing product on shelf has a lot of validity. At that point, I didn't really know, but Innocent was so thrilled by it and got so much from it that I thought, right, this is the validation I need. I'm gonna go with this as a way of doing research. And I'm not, I'm not dissing focus groups, but actually, if you're asking people to recall how they shop, I can't recall how I shopped. I was, I was going to say, when you were doing the focus groups, did you, did you find there were things, were, were there dissatisfactions with what you found or? Well, at the time, there was a lot of cheating in the industry. So people would, would be paid to be whatever the focus group subject required them to be. You know, is it cornflakes this week? Is it a car owner? Is it a pet owner? I'll be whatever you want to be. And it wasn't, I knew that if I found people shopping in the supermarket, they would be shopping for the product. If I stood by the fixture long enough, I would find them and they would be genuine. They wouldn't be fake. And we were having clients saying, hang on, I saw that interviewee in your group in another group last week. And they're not supposed to be used all the time like that. You're supposed to do maybe... I don't know, three a year or something. You're just not meant to do lots and lots of them. So, uh, you know, I was discontented. It was also very static. I mean, you sit in a room with seven strangers who obviously want to appear their best in front of the other seven strangers, you know, the other six strangers. So, you know, you're, you're going to pretend that you buy organic, whether you do or you don't. You know, it's a completely false construct, I think. I mean, I think it has validity for social research I think that can work and I think it has some validity but you know I actually think there is no substitute for getting a product on the shelf in a 3D form and getting people to react to it. So how long have you been in the sort of shopper stalking mode in terms of your research? I've been shopper stalking in person since about 2007 um, and it's now grown to the point where I work with big FMCG names like Unilever. I mean, last year I was very delighted to work with Gail's Bakery, to work with Oatly. Um, and it's just kind of grown and grown, really. At the beginning, you know, it was hard to convince people, but now the word of mouth is out there and founders recommend me to other founders, which is very, very nice. So a lot of it comes through word of mouth. Is it difficult to actually get into the supermarkets? I mean, you can't just turn up and stand in the aisles looking at people, I assume. You can't. I think it's unethical to do that. So I do turn away clients that say, can you just go into the supermarket and do this for me? I think it's not fair to the shoppers. It's not fair to the manager of the store. It's not fair to the staff. Um, and I prefer to do it with permission. 
because then if you're labeled by Waitrose and they put a visitor sticker on you or whatever, um, you know, then you've got you've got some validation that you're okay to be there. So I my clients always ask the supermarket buyer for permission. And then the stores are told that I'll be there on certain days. And if it's Planet Organic, the client might ask the store manager. So I have worked in Whole Foods and I have worked in Planet Organic and in various independent health health food shops. Um, and there it's easier because you can just you can rock up and ask the manager. Do people understand what you're doing? I mean, uh, uh, shoppers, I guess, is probably who I'm thinking of there. Yeah, they do. I mean, I'll go up to them and say, can I ask you one quick question about how you're shopping the category? And then I'll explain. I'll say I'm doing some work for, you know, a, brand, a new brand in the category. And, you know, how do they shop it? What do they look for? Um, and yes, they do. They completely understand the need to see how a product works on the supermarket shelf. They totally get it. They understand why you would do the research. I suppose not everyone is willing to stop. Is that is that fair? Or well, I'll watch them for a bit, and if they're browsing and they've got time, then I know that there's a pretty good chance that they'll give me five minutes or ten minutes. Um, if they're in a tearing hurry and they're moving at pace, no. I mean, I've done work in Canary Wharf in the city where all the shoppers are moving at pace at lunchtime. They're literally in and out. Time is money in the city. You can get hold of them, but it's not that easy. Similarly, in the meal deal, I've worked in the meal deal in Tesco on a number of occasions, and you just have to have like two questions. You can't have more than that. People aren't going to give you time of day. It's their lunch hour. So you have to you have to adapt it to the circumstances that you have. So uh, that's interesting. So you would, you, I guess you would plan that before you actually land in the supermarket in terms of the, the product you're researching and the category and the, the location yeah absolutely so if it's a breakfast product i will get to the store at like seven in the morning um and the client will have identified where there are high sales of the product uh and where we're likely to find people you know kind of rushing in or they'll have talked to the store manager and said when is it super busy um the meal deal, obviously, if people want to investigate the meal deal, that's kind of obvious. But basically, it only gives me a very small window of time to do the research. So it's basically like half past 11 till two, and then the meal deal is dead. So I will do several days in the meal deal to get up to a figure of about 40 or 50 shoppers. I don't know if there is such a thing, but what does a typical day spent shopper stalking involve? Well, if it's if it's a category that people are probably buying, you know, all day, um, then I might go in 10 till six in the store. So because and also because I may stay late in the evening because I want to get people coming in, picking up whatever they're going to have for dinner. Uh, I might do it on a Saturday. Saturdays, obviously, you get a big spectrum of people. You get the people who are working in the week coming in and doing their shop. If I want mums, I'll often go because I have clients with baby snack products. I will go in the morning because they will be in Tesco in the morning with their babies, obviously socializing or just whatever. And then the baby goes home and has a nap. So you kind of got to get in and get them, you know, kind of early in the morning. Um, I've worked on stations. I've worked at, in WH Smith on Victoria, looking at what people buy in terms of snacking. Um, so, yeah, it's it's entirely driven by the product and the category. But something like, say, granola, which I've worked in recently, then I might quite happily be in a high-performing store, kind of, you know, nine till 
four or whatever. Uh, I might go back in the evening and pick up a few of the kind of post-work shoppers as well. So I, it's whatever it takes to get a good cross-section of shoppers. I'm interested in how how accurately or how 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 well people understand their own shopping behaviour because presumably you're asking them about the choices that they're making and why they've selected this over that or what appeals it is that that's the kind of thing, isn't it? My God, people are forensic about their shopping habits. If you go, <laughs> if you go into somewhere like ASDA, people will have a meal plan on their phone. They will have they will be in there with a budget. They will be absolutely costing everything down to the last detail. I did some work in Crew for a well-known cereal manufacturer that I can't name. Um, and people in Crew, there were a lot of discounters very near the supermarkets. There was Asda, there was B&M, there was Aldi, there was a Lidl, there were some other ones. And they would literally cruise around and they would know what all the promotions were running in all of these stores. And they would tell each other, they would be in WhatsApp groups and they would tell each other where products were discounted. Wow. And, and they, they knew to the nth degree, they could stand in the category and go, that is cheaper than that, that 100 grand price, but this is a better deal. These two for one are a better deal or this, you know, they could, people who are on a budget are absolutely on it. Actually, that leads me to, to ask about how, I guess, how supermarkets and shoppers and I suppose food businesses as well have changed over the time, you know, since 2007, since you've been shopper stalking. Well, I think the arrival of Aldi and Lidl has made the most enormous difference. I mean, you know, you know we had the big four and they have come in and shaken up everything. And if I had a pound for every shopper who's told me I've got to go to Aldi or Lidl, I'd be a very rich girl because basically they are evangelical about what they can find there. Now, they can't find everything but they can find a lot of things. And it's really focused consumers on the price and the value of things, and also on the price and value of brands. So people were telling me that Aldi, the equivalent of Aldi Weetabix was a really good product. And I looked it up afterwards, and in fact, Weetabix, I think, do make for Aldi. So they weren't wrong. You know, they, they were spotting the value. Uh, so I think it's it's put the focus on price, as has the current economic situation, where people who maybe, I don't know, two, three years ago in Waitrose, they wouldn't have been bothered about price. People would actually say to me, I never look at price. People are not saying that now because the whole conversation around price has sensitized everybody to what they are paying because it's in the news the whole time. Mm -hmm. So that has really profoundly changed how people perceive value. And that is a huge, huge change because it might well be that the era of cheap food is over now. We've had cheap food for a long time. Presumably you, 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 you stalk in lots of different supermarkets. I do. And do you see different different types of sort of shopper in different? I mean, obviously you will see different types of shopper, but is it is it less or more marked than it would have been five years ago? Um. Waitrose is the place where people read all the ingredients and say that they are not influenced by food fads or marketing. They're really very clear on that. They're very posh and they're very clear that they are not influenced by anything, notwithstanding we're all influenced subconsciously by packaging design. We just are. It's just in our, you know, in our nature. Sainsbury's people are, they interrogate the value of a brand. I was doing bread research in Sainsbury's for Gales for their second bread brand, Bertine. And people were like, well, why would I pay for that when I could have a taste the difference sourdough and it's cheaper? 
I trust the brand, I trust Taste the Difference. What is a brand bringing to me? So Sainsbury's has a lot of loyal own brand shoppers and they're really like, why would I pay for a brand? Tesco, people love brands. They actually like brands in Tesco. I think because some of their own label development has been a bit uneven. So finest wasn't always the finest thing you could buy. Um, and people are quite pragmatic in Tesco. They like brands. They will say to me, I like brands. You know, I like buying them. Um, and then Asda, as, I, as I've said, is very, very price conscious. They're big families, people who shop in Asda. So they have much more constrained budgets. And, you know, they, they will sometimes talk about brands locking them out of being able to buy by the price. So that, that's an interesting thing where people feel that they're shut out by brands. They can't buy them. They can't afford to buy them. You might have to be careful how you answer this, but what are the biggest mistakes that food businesses make when it comes to how you know, shoppers select in store? I think trying to cram a lot of information on pack, uh, which you know a lot of a lot of brands do, it's really confusing for the shopper. They don't know where to go. They don't know what the key messages are. Their eyes might be all over the shop. I mean, I think if you can show the product, that's always quite good. If you can have a recognisable brand mark that people can recognise, so where you have a colour or a design. So, for example, I've been working in milk alternatives for Oatly. And people who are new to the category are really, really confused by it. And I had one guy and he said to me, I've tried lots of them, but I didn't take a photo of the one that I liked on my phone. And now I can't remember it. And I'm going to have to start all over again trying them because I can't remember which one it was. So, you know, in a category like that, where people are really stumbling around and it's incredibly new and they don't know, they will, for example, default to Oatly because they know the name recognition They've seen Oatly in cafes. It's the ones that their friends have. And Oatly, you know, their pack design is what it is. But actually, they've done, they did all the work before by getting into cafes. And Oatly was the thing that you saw in cafes. So people sort of trust it. Can, can you pick out some examples where food businesses have absolutely got it bang on right when it comes to sort of standing out on the shelf? Well, I think Krispy Kreme, I've just worked in Donuts. And Krispy Kreme is just the most extraordinary example of a product that just looks delicious. So they're in the cabinets, they're oozing with icing, there are flavours like Lotus Biscoff, you know, which people know from other contexts, but Krispy Kreme has stolen that. When you open the cabinet doors and you put your nose in to sniff, it actually smells like fresh donuts. They're lit in a beautiful kind of way. And people will just go there and kind of drool at the cabinet because Krispy Kreme do a great job of making the cabinets look good. So, I mean, that's a really good example. And also in the name, the name, Krispy Kreme. Oh, my God. You know, it's a name that kind of says it all. So I think that's a really good example. Um, I think Innocent Drinks, they did a beautiful juice carafe, which when I buy it, I still think is a beautiful thing. And they broke the mold of everybody putting juice in Tetra packs. And they, they did this very expensive carafe um, in plastic, which, you know, is a beautiful thing, comes to the hand. It's very beautiful. It's very distinctive in the category. Uh -huh. you, you, I, I was thinking of what you do is very visual. I, people look at the shelf and make a choice. But actually, it's, there are other, other senses going on, aren't there? 
Yeah, there are. I mean, in bakery, if they can smell the bread in the in-store bakery, they can smell the aromas. Uh, they get very excited about that. It's a it's a proper experience. Um, and if the store is doing it really well, then they are stealing share from packaged bread. Um, but it's, you know, there are areas like ch in chilled, people don't linger for very long. People will linger a bit longer, say, for example, in granola. So I've seen people walking into the granola fixture and they really want to buy it. You can see they really want to buy it and they'll have a look at the chocolate one and they'll put it down and then they'll have a look at a few others. And then they'll sadly go off and buy the muesli. <laughs> because of this this kind of thing about should they buy it should they not buy it but that is a really interesting example of watching shopper behavior and seeing what they're drawn to what they yearn for but they won't let themselves quite have it so it's there's all sorts of different behaviors now i i'd, I'd recommend shamelessly recommend your books to any founder they're, they're just packed with great insights how did you come to write them um i i felt a real urge to help food businesses by getting in touch with food founders. And so I created a blog and it had the five things I wish I'd known before I started working, before I started a food business. And I made a blog online, um, which ended up getting, you know, a really good following. And then people said to me, well, can you work in food for us? And because I only had the blog at that point and I hadn't really developed the business, I needed to change the whole website and take the blog down. And I thought I could put the blog into a book and then it wouldn't be lost because it didn't fit into the website really. Um, so I did the book and then people said to me, well, I've made my product now and I've got it all ready, but, and I've got it on the shelf. What do I do now? And I thought, well, I'll, I'll repeat it and I'll get some help for them on how to get stockists and how to get the product flying off the shelves. So the second book came out of the first one. And in terms of what they've done for me, I mean, I really put them out there to help people because there wasn't much out there at the time. There really wasn't. There is a lot more out there. There's a lot more help for food food founders, but there was nothing when I when I did this. I don't think there was a single book that was specific to the industry. Um, and actually, Unilever found me via the books um, because I cheekily on flying off the shelves. If you go and look at it, you'll see it has a jar of Hellman's on the front, although it doesn't say Hellman's. Uh, and they they came to me and they said, hmm, interesting use of brands on the front cover of your book. And I said, well, my designer told it told me it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so they found me through the books online, which was extraordinary, really. And then I worked with them, which was great. So, yeah, they have been very useful. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Um, and, you know, are there other resources or books or, or sources of information that you sort of think would help food founders? Yeah, I'm going to count through them here. Uh, Females in Food, Chelsea Ford, runs a brilliant online course on margins, distribution, getting stocked, everything that you need to think about. So Females in Food, you'll find her on Instagram, Chelsea Ford. Uh, Recipe for Success by Karen Green is a good book to read because, again, it's going to help you look at and think about margins and costs, which is the most important thing, is the thing that derails food businesses faster than anything else. Uh, the Bread and Jam Festival events and resources, and they have a Food Hub Facebook group, which you should join. It's entirely searchable. You can ask questions in there and people will help you out and give you tips. Um, so I think those are my, my top hits and Bread and, and Jam um, festival events. Also, obviously, Frog Hop. There's loads and loads of detail on the Frog Hop website. Brilliant resource for 
particularly for product development, what you need to think about there. Without giving away any trade secrets or your business plan, how do, how do you see the shopper stalking evolving over the next couple of years? Well, I hope I can just go on having fun in the aisles because it really is fun. I mean, I never know what I'm going to find there. Clients uh, very nicely attribute lots of value to it. Um, I love shopping, talking to shoppers. It's so nice. I really missed it in lockdown when business couldn't happen for me. I wasn't allowed to go into stores and I missed it terribly. And I thought, I can't close this business. I just miss shoppers so much. And they're so funny and they're really acute. And they're really, sometimes in a project, you'll get two or three people and they'll literally just go, their brand strategy needs to be this. And they don't necessarily work in branding or advertising. And they'll tell you what's going on in a category. And I love that. I love the way that people, women particularly, women are bloody brilliant at branding. You know, they're really good. They respond to it well. They understand it. They appreciate the feel of it. Um, they're really into it. I think it's because we used to go and pick berries off trees. And so, you know, picking packaging off shelves is in, in a funny way, a similar kind of thing. Um, but yeah, they, I, I miss talking to women about food really i'm not saying i don't talk to men i do but i have to say the women are the main shoppers they still are the main shoppers i fear i fear there's a a wormhole to go that i should <laughs> avoid stepping into at this yeah, point we'll not go to that wormhole. <laughs> are there i mean you obviously meet with a lot of founders and, and food businesses are there any any in particular that you've learned things from or particularly admire um well actually innocent drinks in their heyday um, they were absolutely extraordinary. They were incredibly rigorous. When I worked for them in my shopper stalking, they would not allow me to approach a shopper until that shopper had touched the mock-up of the product that we were researching. So I had to lurk behind um, a stack of beer and wait until the shoppers touched it. And then I could go and swoop on them, make them jump out of their skin, which obviously I did. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they said, we want this process to be incredibly rigorous. You know, if the packaging isn't working to attract people without you intervening or drawing any attention to it, then it's not working, which is a good point, actually. It's a good point. Absolutely. Uh, we've got a question from uh, Charlotte from Sea Sisters Tinfish, and she asks, what do you think about brand name versus what's inside the packaging? I think founders obsess about the brand name because people are not going to remember you by that at the beginning. They'll remember your shape. They'll remember where you are in the fixture. Are you, are you in yogurts? Are you in granola? Where are you? They'll remember some colors. The brand name will kind of come later. It's actually not how people tend to remember brands at the beginning. Should we um, prioritize what's inside the can or should we keep Sea Sisters as the biggest hierarchy of what's on the can? No, I would tell people what's inside it and I would use enticing language like succulent mussels or um, delicious tender cuttlefish, you know, because, because I think we haven't been used to buying pr premium products in cans. I mean, I obviously have brought your product. I know how premium it is, but a lot of people who are looking at it for the first time with the price tag will be thinking, well, how do I know this is any good? So I you need to get that in there. And you also need to tell them how to use it, which I know you do do. But um, if you look at Bold Bean, who've just premiumized beans, their Instagram is entirely full of things you can do with beans. 
because they found out that people's barrier was, OK, it's beans, but I don't know what to do with them. And one final question from uh, Julianne. Um, she asks, uh, in regards to free from, have you worked in this space and do you find people can be put off by calling out free from credentials? Yeah, I have worked in free from. I worked in free from for naked bars again um, and also uh, NANs. And the thing that really annoys people in free from is the price. They get really upset about having to pay a lot for something when they have a, an allergy. And I've had loads of lectures in the aisles about that and how unfair that is. And I, I agree with that. I think it's really hard for people. Um, I don't do what I see a lot of brands doing where they say they're free from something that would never be in there normally anyway. So people are like, well, that would never be in there. So why are they saying that they're free from that? Be genuinely free from. If you're, if you're free from gluten or you're free from nuts or you're free from, say what you're free from, but don't say you're free from something that would never be in your product. Because, you know, it just muddies the waters and annoys consumers. Excellent. Thank you so much, Tessa, for joining us. Um, you know, if you want to know more, and, and I suggest you sign up for Tessa's um, newsletter as well, which is excellent. So just go to uk. If you want more Food Finders interviews, you can listen to them on our podcast. If you go to uk forward slash podcast or search for Food Founders interviews wherever you get your podcasts, as they always say. Um, and we'll be in that, back next month. And you can sign up and save your place for that at froghop.co.uk forward slash kitchen. Thanks again to everyone for joining us. And thanks, Tessa, for just packing half an hour with more fantastic insights than I, I think I've ever, ever had before. So thanks for that. Thank you very much for having me on. Take care, everyone. Thank you.